Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5? If you know us this morning, we welcome you. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And this morning we come to John 5, considered by many scholars to be one of the greatest, or if not the greatest, chapters in John's entire Gospel concerning the, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although, I must admit, it starts out with a curious story, which gives rise to our first main point, the curious narration. Verse 1 tells us, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, last time we finished studying chapter 4, where Jesus was up in Cana of Galilee, ministering and a guy from a nobleman from Capernaum came and pleaded with the Lord to heal his son who was severely ill. We saw that last time John 4 verses 46 to 54. Now verse 1 of chapter 5 tells us Jesus came back to Jerusalem for another one of the Jewish feasts but which one we're not told. Um, it was no doubt one of the three main feasts of the Jewish year that every able-bodied Jew that lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was in required by Jewish law to attend. That would be Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the early summer, and tabernacles uh, in the uh, fall. So verse 2 tells us, And there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In Jesus' day there were ten gates around Jerusalem to which a person could enter the city. One of these was the sheep gate. Now, it was called the Sheep Gate because it was through this gate that sheep were led into the city to be sacrificed in the temple. And close to the Sheep Gate, there was a pool of water, which was situated in the northeast corner of the old city, old city of Jerusalem. It was called the Pool of Bethesda. The Hebrew name Bethesda means house of mercy, house of mercy. Now, excavations of the pool have revealed that it was actually two pools uh, next to each other. And uh, these pools had five porches. Some of your translations say porticos. The dictionary defines a portico as a structure consisting of a roof supported by columns, usually attached to a building as a porch. So five porches, and um, they were covered. And no doubt they had been built by some giving person, money donated, to build uh, porches with the coverings over them to... Uh, to keep these poor souls, I mean, they were suffering enough, uh, to make them lay out in the hot sun all day was would have been brutal. So somebody said, no, no, we, we have to do something for these people. They're laying out, they're waiting for the angel to trouble the waters to hopefully then allow them to be healed. Let's build uh, some porches and, and coverings so that these people could lay out there in the shade and so on. Now, from what I understand, guys, these two pools and five porches contained... A covered, a covered deck uh, on each side, and one across the middle. This would be on the ground. It's hard to visualize this, but hopefully you can. And uh, some scholars believe the number five was symbolic of the five books of the law, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And um, historians say that, you know, these uh, with one of the uh, covered porches extending across the pool, you had the two uh, sides had uh, covered... Uh, it was like a, a decking, okay? And then one in the middle. From what I understand, if you looked down upon this, it would look like the two tab tables of the law. Remember the stone tablets that Moses brought down from Sinai? 
And uh, thus the pool portrayed a perfect picture of the law. Now keep that in mind. John purposely chose these stories under the direction of the Holy Spirit to not only communicate to us historical incidents and things like that, but also to teach us spiritual lessons. The fact that, you know, the Holy Spirit is keying in on this one guy in this place is significant. He's trying to teach us a spiritual lesson. We'll get to that as we go. But right now, just understand this whole area uh, symbolized the law with the two tables of stone. And the law of Moses contained, of course, no mercy for guilty sinners, only punishment. And yet this place was called the house of mercy. Why? Well, verse 3 in these lay a great number, a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had, been, who had, had an infirmity 38 years. Now, you have to understand something. The Jewish people believed that sickness and other infirmities was the result of sin. We're going to see that more clearly in John 9. Uh, it's not true, but that's what they believed. They believed that sickness, handicaps, infirmity, blindness, all of that was the result of sin in your life. Therefore, if God were to heal somebody, well, it signified the mercy of God upon that person in that God had forgiven their sin and now healed them as a sign he had forgiven them their sin. And uh, was that why they called this place the house of mercy, Bethesda, possibly? Uh, maybe even probably. Because it signified God's mercy on people and how that he forgave their sins and healed their infirmities. And while it's true, as we just said, that the Bible doesn't teach that all sickness can be traced back to sin in the life of the person afflicted. In this man's case, his infirmity seems to have been the result of some kind of sin in his life. Verse 14 alludes to that. Now, before we go any further, let me just say that some of your Bibles have, may have a footnote uh, at the bottom of the page that says something to the effect, the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are not found in the best manuscripts. Please disregard that, okay? Without getting into a study on which manuscripts are the best, a subject that usually causes most people's eyes to glaze over, let me just appeal to your common sense. If you take the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 out of the passage, it would read like this, starting with verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, Verse 5, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Guys, that reading completely removes the reason for why all these sick and handicapped people were gathered at this pool. One guy possibly for 38 years. Why were they all there? Because they all had the hope of being healed. The fact that this man and the rest of these folks kept coming back to this pool tells me this story was true. A lot of people say, oh, it just a, sounds like a fairy tale. It, it doesn't belong in the Bible, really. But then you have to answer, well, then why did these folks keep coming back to this place? 
one guy possibly for 38 years. I mean, that testifies in my mind to the validity that this account was actually true, that these people were being healed on a regular basis because if not, listen, they wouldn't keep coming back in the hopes of being healed. Hope was the driving force, though. Hope was the driving force in all of these people's lives. And I say that even though I'm calling the second main point the hopeless situation. The hopeless situation. Look, sometimes people like this crippled man find hope in what, for all intents and purposes, seems like a hopeless situation. Why? Well, we've already talked about this in John's Gospel. Because people need hope. Hope is essential for life. People need hope. Hope is the thing that gets us out of bed, that we're going to have a hope, the hope of, a, of having a, a, a good day, a, you know, uh, gives us strength to go on to face every new day, especially if you're dealing with some infirmity, okay, like this guy was. Uh, even if it's a long shot hope, even if it's a hope that's kind of mathematically impossible, in the minds of the desperate, it's still hope. That's what causes people to fly to different countries in the world, like Mexico and other countries, to try uh, experimental cancer treatments. They know it's a long shot. But they do it because some hope is better than no hope. Because if you ha stop having hope, you just give up, you're done. So hope is essential. And no doubt this is what drove these folks, and especially this guy, who for 38 years had been dealing with some kind of infirmity that had impeded or impaired his ability to walk, possibly even to move at all, kept him coming back. Now, we're not told what that infirmity was. Not important. Also, we're not told how long this, man, this man's family or friends have been carrying him down to this pool every day in the hope that he might be the first one into the water when the angel uh, stirred it up. For all we know, he and his family and friends have been carrying him down to this pool for years, maybe for 38 years, maybe the whole time he was uh, infirmed. I mean, we can only imagine how miserable this man's life must have been as he lay there day after day, hoping against hope that he might be healed. One commentator offers this insight into what this scene was like. He said, and I quote, What a pathetic sight the crowd around the pool must have been. According to verse 3, a great number of disabled people were there. Not just a few, but hundreds of people gathered around those porches at Bethesda. The sick, including those with undiagnosed diseases, those who were so feverish that they had to, to stay in the shade because the heat of the sun was unbearable. The blind, some congenitally blind, others newly blind. The sightless huddled close to the edge of the pool, no doubt, hoping someone would lead them into the pool when the waters quivered. The withered and lame were there, who could not make it to the pool on their own. Uh, their only hope to, uh, to reach the waters was to crawl over others weaker than themselves. What a pitiful crowd of broken humanity. It does not take much imagination to see those withered, wasted bodies, to smell the stench, to see the filth, and to sense the pathos of young and old among the impotent, suffering humanity. It had to be a horrible, distressing sight, except for one thing, Jesus was there, end quote. And folks, Jesus is the only hope for the hopeless. No matter what the problem or how impossible the situation, Jesus is the answer. Doesn't mean everyone is always healed. 
but he's the answer for every problem because in eternity we will all have perfect health. Um, no more sickness, no more disease, no more tears, no more dying. So he is the hope. Okay, someday we're all going to be healed one way or another if you're a Christian. Either he's going to heal your body on the earth to give him glory, or when the, rap, when the uh, trumpet sounds and the angel shouts and Jesus says, come up here, at that instant you'll be made like him, you'll see him as he is, and you won't ever have to worry about another sick day the rest of your life. So Jesus is the answer. In him there is always hope. Verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew. How did Jesus know? Well, he knows well, pretty much everything. When he was on the earth, he didn't know the timing of the rapture. But the Holy Spirit revealed things to the Lord. And Jesus knew that this man had already been in that condition for a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, again, guys, understand Jesus knew this man's condition. He knew what caused it. He knew how long he had been suffering with it. Just like the Lord Jesus knows the condition of every person in this room, your physical, your emotional, and your spiritual condition, he knows every one of us intimately in that regard. But look, why would the Lord even ask a question like this? I mean, it sounds ridiculous to ask a man who was suffering with this condition for 38 years if he wanted to be healed. I mean, isn't it obvious? Well, before I answer that, I'd like you to consider... How many sick and handicapped people were there? Again, verse 3 tells us a great multitude, right? How many did Jesus heal? One. He healed one man, walked away, and left the others unhealed. Now, I bring that out because it contradicts the teaching we're hearing today from charismatic preachers and teachers who are telling us that it's God's will that everyone be healed of their sicknesses and their infirmities. And when you point out to them that not all Christians are healed or that in this story Jesus only healed one man and left the rest unhealed, they often respond, well, if Christians had enough faith, they would all be healed. And the reason Jesus only healed one man out of hundreds at the pool of Bethesda was because the man in this story was the only one who had faith to be healed. Well, it sounds good, I guess. But as you read the story, you realize that not only didn't this man have faith to be healed, verse 13 tells us he didn't know who Jesus was. The issue that's being taught here is the sovereignty of God, not the faith of man. The sovereignty of God basically means that God is in control. God does what he wants, and we must accept that. Whatever he chooses to do, we must accept it and submit to it as his sovereign will and what is best for the situation. We can always pray for what we want God to do and think God should do. No problem with that. But 1 John 5, 14 and 15, uh, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know that whatever we ask, we shall have the petitions we have asked of him. 
So we go ahead and we ask God for what we want, what we feel we need, uh, what we think he should do. Nothing wrong with that. But always end your prayers as Jesus did in the garden, but not my will, but your will be done. Now, we, did, we do know that Jesus would go on to say in John's gospel that he only did the things his father directed him to do. So obviously, the father through the spirit only directed him to heal one man out of hundreds that was in this area, uh, sick, infirmed, and so on. And um, no doubt the father directed Jesus uh, which miracles to perform, who to heal, because uh, those things would bring the most glory to God. And one of the reasons Jesus picked this man to heal, again, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, was not simply to show mercy to someone who was suffering with a debilitating infirmity. Yes, that was part of it. But I'm convinced it was to use this story in a further way, bigger way, to teach all of us a spiritual lesson. Now, hold on to that. We'll come back to it, okay? But getting back to our earlier question, why did Jesus ask this man if he wanted to be healed? Isn't the answer obvious? You'd think so, right? But not really. Not really. What do I mean? Well, you see, there are a lot of people who are crippled uh, in life. Not physically crippled. There's a lot of those. But there's a lot more who are crippled, not physically, but psychologically. In other words, they're hindered in their ability to function as healthy people because of things like anger, hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, and other debilitating emotions that they have internalized over the years over the years and as such these have become so much a part of them of who they are for such a long time that they don't really want to be healed quote unquote we'll call it a healing okay they don't really want to be healed because they have come to depend on these things as a crutch to get them from day to day look negative emotions are destructive but they're also empowering they're kind of like drugs okay there's a lot of people who need drugs to get from day to day. Now, I'm not talking about uh, uh, prescription drugs. I'm talking about street drugs, crack cocaine, methamphetamine, that kind of stuff. So a lot of people have come to depend on that to get them from those things that get them from day to day. And even though those things are killing them from the inside, poisoning them, they still lean on them. And that's why a lot of drug addicts don't want to be delivered. They don't want to be healed. Because that's their crutch. They need that to get from day to day. Now, of course, that's not the case with this man. Different situation, physically speaking. However, psychologically, uh, these can be the same. And I'll show you what I mean. As we look at the man in our text, it could be that after 38 years of being lame, having people, you know, support him, help him, literally carry him from place to place, that he had gotten, listen, comfortable and used to his infirmity in other words he had become dependent upon it like a crutch to get him from day to day and it could be and i'm just speaking hypothetically i don't know for sure it could be that dependence upon others to do for him was more appealing than the independence and personal responsibility that a physical healing would bring into his life that could be scary can't it People that have gotten used to others doing for them, taking care of them. Um, you know, oftentimes they just have gotten used to that. And the idea of being independent, self-sufficient, um, responsible for their lives is very scary. And uh, they don't really want to be healed in that regard. 
And so, guys, with that you know, in mind, Jesus' question to this handicapped man suddenly doesn't sound so ludicrous. But let's personalize it for a moment. If the Lord Jesus were to come to any, any number of Christians today and ask them, do you want to be set free from fill in the blank? Do you want to be set free from and made whole? Honestly, I'm not sure many would say yes. Well, they all say they want to be set free. We all say we want. It's like a well-known pastor told me one time. He said, you know, he was preaching on God delivering people from dependence to alcohol, drugs, cigarettes. Well, a guy met him in the parking lot after church and said, Pastor, I heard what you said, and I really want to be set free from the cigarettes. And the pastor saw the guy had a pack of cigarettes in his pocket. He said, well, give me your cigarettes. I'll crush them up, and we'll pray. Oh, oh, no, no, I don't want to. No. Well, you want to be set free? Give me the cigarettes. Well, I'll crush them, and we'll, we'll pray and trust God. To, oh, but, well, maybe after this pack. Well, okay. We all say we want to be set free. We all want to be delivered. But really? Really? When Jesus said this to this man, um, do you want to be made well? I think he was taking this into consideration. You've been in this condition for so long, do you really want to be made well? Are you going to be able to function? Are you scared? Uh, are you more scared of the healing and what it's going to mean for your life that you'd have to be responsible and independent? Is it just easier for you to still lay here and keep being lame? Again, if Jesus were to ask a number of Christians today that very question, again, I'm not sure that they would say yes. And that, guys, in a nutshell, is the reason why so many Christians remain crippled and lame in their walk with God. It's not because God doesn't want them to walk with Him. He's commanded us to do so. It's because they don't want to let go of their crutch in life, whatever that crutch might be. They have come to depend upon it to get them from day to day. Listen, wholeness in life, wholeness in life, which brings with it the ability to function as a healthy person, again, from day to day, starts, listen, in the heart. It starts in the heart by letting go of things like anger, Resentment, bitterness, jealousy, unforgiveness, especially hatred. If these are left undealt with, and a lot of times we've internalized them for so long, sometimes we're not even aware anymore that we have these feelings. We've kind of pushed them off into the side, locked them in a closet somewhere. They're there, but we don't want to deal with them. We all got the junk closets, right? And the Lord is all about bringing them out and making us look at them and say, look, this needs to be dealt with. You, you push this off to the side. You're ignoring it. You kind of swept it under the rug, so to speak. But I see the heart. I see what's there. And until you are ready to give me this, until you're ready to honestly want to be freed of this or healed of this, it's going to damage and possibly destroy your walk with me. It's already damaged it. Look, if these aren't left, these are left undealt with, they will definitely cripple your walk, your walk with God. Not to mention destroy you from within. And so Jesus is asking, I believe you this morning, do you want to be made well? And the Greek word in verse 6 for well is a word that means healthy. Do you want to be made healthy? You know, but we so often do exactly what this man did when Jesus asked him if he wanted to be healed. 
he gave the Lord excuses why he wasn't healed, why he couldn't be healed, and even blaming others for not helping him to be healed. Verse 7. Pastor Chuck Smith, I think, summed it up well when he said, and I quote, it's interesting, it's interesting, the man didn't answer the question of Jesus at all. The question was, would you like to be healed? And all the man did was tell Jesus the reasons why he wasn't healed. I think that a lot of times when the Lord comes and addresses our place of impotence and by asking, would you like to be set free? We give the Lord excuses. Well, Lord, you know, I've had this for a long time and uh, blah, 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 and I really have tried this and that and I can't be set free. Chuck said, we're, we're just telling him all of the reasons why we can't be set free. All the reasons why we are continuing in our place of impotency rather than responding, yes, Lord, I would like to be healed and set free. And so the man gives to Jesus the reasons why he isn't and can't be healed. You probably know all the reasons why you're in the condition you're in. You could probably give the Lord a good explanation for what's going on. It's, this, this is what's happening, Lord. This is why I'm still in this same lame condition, why I'm not healed. The question Jesus asked this man was, would you like to be healed? End quote. And guys, that brings us to our third main point, the Sabbath violation. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And the day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Now guys, that John makes it a point to tell us that Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath was no accident. What he's trying to do, he's trying to show us that it was because of Jesus' supposed Sabbath violations that weren't violations at all. But in the minds of the Jews, when John uses that term, it's always the Jewish religious leadership. But John wants us to know that it was Jesus' Sabbath violations that escalated the hatred of the Jews uh, toward him uh, to a point where eventually it led to his crucifixion. John wants us to understand that. And John makes that point very clear in verse 16 when he said, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Not only did Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath, but then he had the audacity, the unmitigated gall, to tell him to pick up his bed. Don't think of a four-point, four, four uh, uh, whatever. Don't, don't think of a four-post bed. It's actually a sleeping matter, a bedroll. Jesus said, wrap up your bedroll and get out of here. Take it with you. But, here, but the reaction, if the story is curious, the reaction is even curiouser. Is that a word, English teachers? I mean, instead of being excited that religious leaders, instead of being excited that a guy who was crippled for 38 years was now walking, they didn't care about people. They only cared about their rules and regulations and how spiritual they looked and how they prayed on the street corner and then foreclosed in some poor widow's house. They didn't care about people, all right? All they cared about was their rules and regulations. And, and here's another thing. 
you'd think they would have gotten excited, not just because this guy got healed, but because in their own scriptures, in Isaiah 35 and other places, it prophesied when Messiah comes, one of the things he's going to do is make the lame walk. Now here's a guy who's calling himself the Messiah, who's working miracles, causing lame people to walk, doing all the things Messiah was prophesied to do. You'd think they would have fallen on their faces and welcomed their Messiah. But no, they fought against him. They hated him, wound up crucifying him. All because of their hard hearts. But look, we could go on on this point. Because since John focuses our attention, though, on the Sabbath, and since it was Jesus' opposed to disregard and constant violations of the Sabbath that caused these religious leaders to hate him so much and wind up and had them wind up finally killing him, uh, I think it's an important enough subject for us to look at next time. And I say that because there are a lot of churches today who teach that the Sabbath is still in effect. And Christians need to keep the Sabbath. And I've had numerous people ask me that question. I've heard guys on radio, and um, it's become kind of a big thing today in some circles. Um, what about that? What about that? Well, come on back next time, God willing, and we will look at that. And uh, if you're thinking, well, gee, it's Sabbath, I'm not into that. It doesn't affect me. I don't think I'll come. Maybe I'll go play golf or something. Um, there is a spiritual application that you really need to hear. So come on back. All right. So we've seen the curious narration, the hopeless situation, the Sabbath violation, and finally the practical application. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, this guy, and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing, worst thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well, thinking he was doing Jesus a, a service, advertising the Lord's ministry. Didn't realize that was the piece of information they were looking for because they wanted to kill the man. And they probably knew who Jesus was. Ah, we knew it was Jesus. Oh, we're going to get him. That kind of thing. Um, as I said, and we'll look at this more clearly in chapter 9, the Jews believed that sickness and um, handicaps were the result of sin. The Bible doesn't teach that, but they believed it. Okay, and uh, But here, Jesus tells us in verse 14, apparently this man's infirmity was caused by sin in his life, in some capacity. But notice that as soon as he was healed, he made a beeline for where? The temple. Now, this will be the temple precincts, not the temple building, okay? There's the Nas, temple proper. That's where the priest would enter in and, and uh, burn incense and things, and the Holy of Holies would be there. This was the temple precinct where people were allowed to congregate and rabbis taught, and Jesus taught there many times. So the first thing this guy does immediately after he's healed is he, and, and, and the implication is he's forgiven of his sins. That's what he would have thought. My sin has been forgiven because I'm healed. God had mercy on me, right? The first thing he wanted to do after he was healed, had his sins forgiven, was to go to the temple. First thing he wanted to do was to get back into fellowship with God. I believe, I can't prove it, my conviction, I believe that this man hadn't been to the temple in 38 years. For 38 years, his sin had separated him from God and crippled his walk. Once again, 
as we pointed out earlier, one of the reasons Jesus picked this man to heal was not only to show mercy to somebody that needed mercy and healing. I'm sure that was part of it. But I think the larger picture was to use this story to teach us all a spiritual lesson as well. Initially, when Jesus asked this man if he wanted to be healed, he responded by giving the Lord, as we said, excuses. Why he hadn't been healed. Why he couldn't be healed. Even blaming others for not helping him to be healed. Many of us do the same thing. We tend to make excuses for ourselves, even blaming others for not helping us to walk with God. Years ago, I had a guy in the church. He didn't last too long, but he was here for a while who blamed me for him not being able to walk with God because I refused to disciple him one-on-one. Now understand, I have discipled people one-on-one numerous times. The reason I wouldn't disciple this guy is because he wouldn't come to church. He didn't want to come to Sunday service or Wednesday night to sit under the teaching of the Word, which would have discipled him. No, he wanted me to disciple him. He wanted his own personal pastor. And I said, look, when you come to church, when you start coming to church, and sitting under the teaching of the word, you're going to grow. And if you need extra help, I'll be happy to meet with you one-on-one. But I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to, uh, you know, uh, feed into this guy's whatever, pride. You know, I'm not going to sit with everyone else. I'm special, and you need to minister to me one-on-one kind of an attitude. No way. So, you know, um, so he left. You know, it was my fault for his lousy carnal walk. Uh, but, you know, I'm, okay, Whatever. Whatever gets you from day to day. Blame the pastor for your lame walk. That's okay, all right? Um, look, let me just say this. Don't, don't blame your spiritual lameness on anyone else. Now, Jesus is not looking for excuses. He's asking you a very simple question. Do you want to be made spiritually whole and healthy? It's either yes, I do, or no, I don't, but it's up to you. It's a, it's a matter of your will. After asking this man that question, Jesus simply said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Don't miss this. Notice that Jesus gave this man an impossible command to obey. Impossible by his own strength. Or in his own strength. And yet, when this man willed to obey Jesus' command, when he willed to do the Lord's will, he discovered that everything he needed to obey was supplied to him from God. Don't miss that. Every one of the commands the Lord has given us in his word are impossible for us to obey in our own strength. And he knows that. He knows that. He commands us, walk with me, serve me, glorify me, be victorious, be holy, love your enemies. All these go beyond our ability to obey. But if we will will to obey, if we will passionately desire in our heart to obey what God has said, what he has commanded us, listen, he will supply us with the power to obey. As someone has said, the Lord's commandments are his enablements. He never commands you to do something, but what he's not willing to give you the power to obey it. The Lord knows we're all weak, that our frame is but dust. He knows. 
he is going to have to give us the ability to obey his commands. He told a group of Galileans, blue-collar guys, go into all the world, preach the gospel to everybody. You know, go into Athens, Alexandria, Rome, all the centers of culture and learning. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. But I'm not sending you out in your own strength. Go back to Jerusalem. Wait till you are endued with power from on high. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be given the power to go out and do all that I've commanded you to do. That command goes for every one of us. Every one of us, the children of God. Whatever the Lord commands you to do, don't say, well, Lord, I can't do that. I've tried. The Lord is not asking you to have the ability. But what he is expecting from you and I is to have the desire, the will to obey his word. I mean, you just want to hear excuses as to why you haven't been able to stop drinking or taking drugs or looking at junk on the Internet or letting go and forgiving others who have hurt you. He's not looking for excuses, all right? These things are destroying you. They're destroying your uh, health, poisoning you from the inside. They're definitely uh, damaging your walk with the Lord. He's not asking you for any excuses. He's simply asking you this morning, do you want to be healthy in your emotional and spiritual life? The answer is a simple yes or no. And if it's yes, well, when you say yes, Lord, I do desire. And you begin to act on that desire, then he will supply all the power you need to obey. And guys, this could apply to anything, uh, to your marriage, to your ministry, Again, to some weakness or area of bondage in your flesh, alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, pornography. Jesus is asking everyone here this morning, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be delivered? Do you want to be made whole? And understand, so often we want to point it back at us. Well, Lord, here's why I can't. Again, you know, the Lord didn't come up to this guy and say, all right, um, have more faith. You'll be healed. Um, have more self-esteem. Look at you laying there like this. I mean, look at, look at this. Have more self-esteem. That's going to go a long way in you getting up and being healed. Or, I love this one today. You know, you, you hear this from churches. Amazing to me what's going on uh, from some pulpits. The Lord didn't come up to this guy and say, visualize yourself running through a meadow. <laughs> really. He just simply asked him, do you want to be healed? Notice the, the Lord's command was threefold. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Rise, will to do the impossible out of obedience and faith, and then begin to act on your faith. Take up your bed. Don't leave anything behind that you could use the backslide slide with. You know, make a clean break uh, from your sin and your past. A clean break from the old friends, the old places, the old ways of thinking. Uh, no more. Don't leave anything behind that you might backslide with. Dump the drugs. Okay? Get rid of the porn. Uh, whatever it might be that's stumbling you. If you want to obey Jesus, he says, rise. Take up your bed. In other words, get it out of here. Don't come back to this place. And finally, walk. Don't expect to be carried any longer. You're no longer a spiritual cripple. You are a new creation in Christ. 
Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Paul said, you are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Look, the time for many Christians is to get up now. It's enough of just, you know, living their Christian life like a spiritual invalid. No power, no walk, uh, no ministry. The, the time has come for the children of God to rise up and start walking with God, to take responsibility for their life. Sure, a walk of faith is kind of scary. Because as you walk with him, he will direct you into areas that you're going to require, need more and more faith because he wants to use you more and more for his glory. But you've got to take responsibility for your spiritual life. You've got to make the effort to be all that God, by his grace and strength, don't forget that, has commanded you and I to do and to be. Look, as Christians, we all want to walk with God. But very few of us are willing to kneel before God. In other words, we want spiritual wholeness, victory, strength. But so often we're not willing to let go of our sin. We're not willing to kneel before God and first, and first acknowledge. You know, it's amazing to me. The day in which we're living, uh, forget unbelievers. This is, they're doing this all the time. I'm talking about Christians now. It's amazing how many Christians are involved in sin and yet have justified it. or They won't even acknowledge their sin. How can God begin to work in your life to give you victory over what you don't even believe is happening? John said if we confess our what? Sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we're not willing to kneel before him and humbly acknowledge that we are in sin, that we are holding on to some crutch that is hindering our walk with him. And we're not confessing or repenting of that sin. Well, how is the Lord going to begin to, be, to work in our life to bring healing and victory and power and so on? I'll, I'll, I'll read this and we'll close. This is a, a, one pastor gave this challenge to the people of God. Again, I'll read it to you and we'll, we'll close. He said, and I quote, Do you want to be healed? Do you want spiritual wholeness? Or do you just want to feel sorry for yourself, even to the point of blaming, blaming everyone else for the mess that is your spiritual life? Truth be told, many Christians don't want to walk with God in power and holiness. Why? Because they really love their sin and don't want to let it go. Out of, the, out of that great multitude of sick and lame people by the pool of Bethesda, only one was healed. Will you be that one? Will you be the one who wills to do his will and then steps out in faith to obey? He will give you the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to obey when so many others stay impotent and crippled in their walk with him. Remember, only one disciple was willing to obey Jesus' command to step out of the boat onto the Sea of Galilee. Only Peter was willing to obey an impossible command while the other disciples stayed back in the boat. I'm sure they could have given the Lord good excuses for why they hadn't stepped out, possibly even blaming each other. The Lord isn't looking for excuses. He's looking for faith and obedience. Peter willed to do Jesus' will and by faith stepped out to obey. And because of it, he was the only one who experienced the miracle of walking on water. This lame man is being lifted up by the Holy Spirit as a lesson for all of us. 
The difference between victory and defeat, between the, the miraculous and the mundane, between a dynamic spiritual walk and an impotent one is simpler than you think. Will to do God's will, then rise, take up your bed, and walk. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word gives us strength. It gives us guidance. Lord, your word is a light, a lamp, that we, uh, if we walk uh, from its light, we will never stumble in darkness. And Lord, forgive us if we have been like this lame man in our Christian life. Where Lord, we have basically just, you know, the devil has beat us down and we've failed. And so we're just laying there now <clears throat> like uh, a crippled, impotent person making all kinds of excuses why we can't stand up, we can't serve you in ministry, we can't go out and witness for you and see people saved. We have all these excuses, you know. Uh, you know, when I get the promotion, then I'll have more time. When the kids grow up, then I'll have more time. Or, you know, as soon as I kick this bad habit, stop drinking, taking drugs, then I'll be able to walk with the Lord. No, Lord, forgive us for thinking that way. It's you that gives us strength. And all we need to do is say, yes, Lord, I want to be set free. I want to be whole. And then step out in faith. And as we do, you will give us the ability to do all that you've commanded us to do. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us fresh power in this church. That, Lord, your spirit would fall upon us. That the excuses would stop. That the power would flow. And we would present ourselves daily before you as instruments to be used by you for your glory. Here I am, Lord, send me. May that be the, the, the cry of our hearts. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.